Hi, this is Amanda Dara. I'm a contributor at CJR and producer of The Kicker. In August 2019, days after 32 people died in the El Paso and Dayton mass shootings, our host, Kyle Pope, spoke with John Temple. Temple was the editor of Denver's Rocky Mountain News when the Columbine massacre changed America's perception of safety forever. Temple told us about the photos he decided not to run that day in 1999, and the one he did, which confirmed a child's death before police spoke with the mother. In the wake of the horror of El Paso and Dayton, Temple's thoughts were on the civil rights movement, on the fight for abolition, the times in our history when journalists have taken a moral stand. As we take stock of the devastation in Atlanta and Boulder, and of the ways in which the news cycle failed, especially Atlanta's victims, here again are John Temple and Kyle Pope. Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, mass shootings in America and how journalists cover them or should be covering them. It's been a particularly brutal couple of weeks, as we all know. We've had a couple of dozen people die in in mass shootings, including attacks in Ohio and Texas. And what we've seen the journalism response be is a sort of ritual that has developed, where you have the initial coverage, which sometimes includes misleading information as people scramble to figure out what's going on. Then the focus on the shooter um, and what caused him, and it's all almost always a him, to do what he did. Then the focus on the victims and profiles of them. And then finally, a sort of hand-wringing era of what's to be done about this, which leads to sort of partisan finger-pointing, and then we all go home until the next one happens again, which unfortunately is now a kind of regular occurrence. So is this really the best way for news media organizations to be handling these sort of events? you got to think not. I'm very happy to be joined this week by John Temple, who's the director of UC Berkeley's investigative reporting program. John, welcome to The Kicker. You sort of come to this in part from your experience as the editor of the Rocky Mountain News in Denver when the Columbine High School shootings happened 20 years ago. You wrote a terrific piece for The Atlantic about that experience and how you now see journalism in light of these most recent events, but in general as it's covering mass shootings. And I want to get to to your views on that, but let's just start with 1999. How how long had you been editor um, when, when that happened? I'd been at the Rocky Mountain News for seven years, and I'd, be, I'd started there as the metro editor and rose through the ranks, became managing editor, and then I was the editor uh, when the shootings occurred. And uh, you write in the Atlantic piece, you say, at the time we thought it would be the mass shooting to end all mass shootings. How could we let anything so horrible happen again? It should be said that the Rocky Mountain News went on to win a Pulitzer for its photography around that event. What is your main memory of just the process, the, the logistics of covering something both so awful but also so huge? I mean, what still sticks out in your mind? A number of things, but one thing that really sticks out in the case of Columbine and that I think people forget is that was the first mass shooting that seemed to unfold live on television. Mm -hmm. Local television stations, which were very capable, they were broadcasting from the scene, and there were networks, CNN, that had uh, helicopters over the scene. So it was, it felt like 
the whole nation was watching the shootings as they were unfolding and the tragedy as it unfolded, much the way that the O.J. Bronco chase on mm-hmm. the L.A. freeway, it became like a national event uh, instantly because of the live television. So that, that was one factor. It was overwhelming because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And also, the, it was high school kids. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, the, 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 yeah, you're absolutely right. When you see that parents were flocking to the scene, and of course the traffic jams became insane, like po- law enforcement couldn't get to the site because there were so many cars of people rushing to find their children. And you have to remember this is pre-9-11, so that we hadn't had that kind of scale of, of disaster. And, and th- this, it was just chaos. It was just unbelievably emotional. For people, and you were seeing young people fleeing a high school uh, in lines, and officers with guns pointed, and it it just seemed completely extraordinary. And at the time, you thought this is horrific. Surely, there's going to have to be a response that's going to keep this from happening. Was that your expectation? Yeah, and I, it, not only my expectation, but I felt that it was our responsibility as journalists to cover it as deeply as possible to the point where the country would have the information and the community itself would have the information to make informed decisions and to respond. And And in some ways, it did. I don't I mean, it's, one thing that's important to note is that there were some changes that occurred after Columbine. For example, police nationwide changed their practices and attacked immediately. If there was shooting, they went for it, and they went after the shooters. Now, that's positive, but it's cold comfort to me, because that doesn't prevent the shooting in the first place. Right. So, so there was there were some uh, changes as a result, but we were incessant for years. We were doing investigations related to Columbine and to what was known and what could have been done, and not much changed as a result. And what were, what were examples of some of those stories, those sort of enterprise stories that you did in the wake of it that you thought... If we can just prove this, or if we can document this, surely people will wake up. One, clearly the purchase of the guns. How did the students Mm -hmm. obtain guns and and bomb-making equipment? Because one of the things that we were so lucky during Columbine was that none of their bombs went off. They really wanted to kill a lot more people than they did. Uh, Two was... What did the school district know about these students, and what did they do that could be applied to other places? And and what we found was that there was a circle the wagons approach by the school district. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had already been in trouble with the law, and there were reasons to investigate them. And the sheriff's department failed to execute a search warrant, and if they had executed a search warrant, they would have found bomb-making materials, and, it, and the whole tragedy could have been averted. We had to really force and push them to reveal almost anything. And of course, there, the, 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 the one other core issue that we tried to explore that was extremely difficult was, what did the parents know? Uh, that was impenetrable until... Um, Mrs. Klebold uh, wrote a book 
what, what did you think was going to happen? So you did all this work. You yeah. showed all these problems. You raised all these issues. And did you still had optimism that once you pointed this out, that people were going to act on it so we don't see a lot of more kids killed? Yeah, we thought that, that we would help stimulate discussion and debate about steps we as a community should take to prevent this kind of violence in the future. And there was a general feeling that we needed to know everything that had happened and what could be learned from it so that we could take concrete steps. You know, one example is something that we're still debating, which is um, background checks at gun shows. And we thought that was the responsible thing to do. And frankly, I still think it was the responsible thing to do. And I think and I think it's incumbent upon us to do it. But the problem is it leaves in place some of the larger intractable problems, which is that things have gotten worse since Columbine, not better, and that the reporting, while it may have uh, informed people, we just go through this collective ritual of mourning as a society and as a nation. But it's almost like we're unwilling to look at the most troubling aspects. You know, why are people using today assault weapons? Why do people have to have assault weapons? So my frustration, I guess, when I look at, and, and it's with my own profession, which I love. And, I, you know, I've, I'm a journalist. I've, you know, it's something I'm committed to it. But I feel a despair about the work because I see people thinking it's enough to go through the various stages that you described earlier uh, you know, first you cover the event, then the victims, etc. And it seems to lead nowhere. And one question I have is, is whether we as journalists should look at ways to have that coverage, but not have everybody doing the same stories, which is what's happening. You know, they all go there, they all do the same thing, they all look for little tidbits that are going to separate them from the pack. Instead of looking at really tough stories, which, you know, Walmart and its gun sales, sheriff's offices or law enforcement, whether they're taking these issues seriously. But I, but I think it does revolve around um, weapons and access to them myself. And here I am at, you know, an investigative reporting program, and I sort of believe in deeper enterprise reporting that gets to the bottom of Who's responsible? How are they responsible? And what can we do about it? And, and how, how do you hold them responsible? I'm frustrated by the, the gap between what I hope journalism could do and what I see journalism actually doing. Yeah. I feel the same way. I remember right after this happened, I mean, I, it was just like, you know, we can we can do this if we want, but it's not going to have any impact. We can sort of say it's outrageous. We can talk about the, the ridiculousness of people having military-style assault weapons in, in the suburbs and in shopping centers, and not a damn thing's going to be done. Your, your piece in The Atlantic is called I've Seen the Limits of Journalism. And it's not just yeah. guns that we're talking about. We're talking about right. you definitely feel the same thing around the coverage of Trump's lies. Like, okay, let's let's point out again that he's lying. Or let's point out right, again right. that what he says is outrageous and nobody cares. Or um, you know, we've we've recently been looking a lot at the at the coverage of climate and and how people are writing the same stories and there doesn't seem to be as I mean, I actually think finally we're starting to see some movement there, but it's been a long time. Right. So I don't know. I mean, it, it. I've sort of said for a while, especially as it relates to Trump, that like the way that we're telling these stories is not working. 
the way that we're framing this coverage is not resonating. We're, we're not connecting to people. And, you know, there's an old school debate in journalism that says you do the work and you just sort of let go of the results. Like whether people respond to this, not our problem. But I think, and this is the sort of the point of your essay, as it, as it relates to guns, we can't stop there. So I noticed the, there's a new cover of Time magazine out. I think that, that the headline is Enough. And they've, they've sort of taken the view that, like, and, and Margaret Sullivan in the Washington Post also wrote about this this week, that, like, we as a news industry need to sort of be more active and take a more advocacy role and say, like, we cannot stand by and let this keep happening. How do you feel we sort of navigate that line now? Yeah, I think that, I think that's an important question, and and I don't share the view that it's enough to just do our job and put stuff out there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I started as a reporter, I remember when I was doing difficult stories, and I might go down a blind alley and you know waste time because it didn't result in anything. My editors would say to me, and I had great editors. I was very lucky. They'd say to me, "Well, nobody cares about the problems you had in the story. They only care about the story." When you see um, journalism of our era, like uh, the first season of Serial, where uh, the reporter is open about her doubts and questions and the the channels she goes down, you saw that it resonated much more with the public. And and I only say that to tell that story to say that this idea that what we, you know, all all our job is is to do our job and then let whatever happen. I don't believe that's true. If you, I think if you look at two important moments in American history, one, the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. There were papers that were on the right side of the civil rights movement, and mm-hmm. there were papers that were on the wrong side of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And you can't, I don't think you can say that, you know, uh, a paper that rejected and just sort of like, uh, rejected the, the core values of human decency of the civil rights movement and equality for all um, was doing its job. I mean, they were they were a negative force. And I think the same thing about abolition, the courage of publishers that would write for abolition. So there, there have been times in our history where clearly journalists, and, and of course, we could cite many other times where journalists have taken a stand. And I think the times have changed and that it is important to have a moral foundation to your work and that there are things that are clearly unacceptable and that are wrong and and that you have to stand up against them. One really interesting story occurred during Columbine that might shed light on this and because one thing you have to accept is that the media provides sanitized coverage of both Dayton mm-hmm. and El Paso. Mm-hmm. What it, what really happened there is a lot worse than we ever saw. Right? Yeah, you write about that as it relates to Columbine, too, how horrifically bloody it, it, it is. It was unbelievable. I mean, I was sitting, this is still film, I was sitting over a light table looking at pictures, and we couldn't put them on the front page because it was, too, it, it was felt that it was too shocking at the time. Mm-hmm. However, on that day, we had a, we did rent a helicopter and we shot a photo, an incredible photo, one of our photographers, of one of the students at Columbine dead on a sidewalk outside the school, can of Dr. Peppers at his hand, with students running by, gun police officers with rifles pointed at the school. I mean, it was super dramatic still photo. 
And I knew it was an important photo. And I didn't put it on the front page, but I put it inside once a reader knew that they were um, reading coverage of Columbine. And I ran it big, full color, you know, full color, big on a spread. And the next morning, the mother of that boy called me. And she had still not been told by authorities that her son was dead. She had not been informed of his condition. So she said she learned of his death from that picture in the newspaper. And she was upset. But then she let me send a reporter to spend the day with her. And she carried that picture next to her, in her pocket, next to her heart. She, she, we talked through the years, through over months, actually, and she told me that, you know, she still thought I was wrong to publish it, but she understood what I did. And then a year and a half after the shooting, she wrote me a letter and she said, you know, I was wrong. This is the mother telling me that I was wrong. I'm writing you to tell you to have the courage to show people the truth about what's really happening in our society. And I want to encourage you to have that kind of strength and fortitude mm. to show people the, the reality of what's happening. And so one thing I wonder about is, I mean, it's terrible to say in some ways, but I think it's worth discussing is, you know, how far do you go in showing how terrible, mm. what, what really this looks like? I mean, I, in, in my possession, I had crime scene photos from Columbine that I never ran in the paper. They were leaked to me. You know, I had pictures inside the library. I had pictures. I mean, it was, it was horrific. Yeah. And I kept those under seal in, and I didn't, I never published them or anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I would publish those today, but I am saying that there's a point where weeping, you know, isn't enough. Like the, the sad response is not enough. And, and I wonder, and, and is there a point where not pointing fingers at, you know, where did the guns come from? Who is making money from the gun? Who is advertising that gun? You know, where, what is the chain of events that led to this, you know, to these killers having the ability to do what they did? And mm. is there some responsibility in that chain of events? And, you know, there's a story, it relates to climate change and uh, tropical forests, rainforests. And maybe this is apocryphal, but my understanding is, is that one of the most influential things was putting pressure on Home Depot not to carry first growth hardwoods from yeah. rainforests. Mm -hmm. And that effectively limited the, the logging because it reduced the market for um, that kind of wood and those kinds of trees. And I wonder sometimes if um, the pressure today that journalists are involved in, you know, if our camera is not placed in the right direction and maybe instead of everyone going to cover the, the sorrow and everything, that we go and cover the chain and the path that led to this day so, and who's along that path and who's profiting from that path. And just the way people are covering the president, what words contributed to, if, if, the, if that is the case, what words contributed to that path and how can we change that? And so so what's interesting is that you're, you're, you're saying that the answer is, in, is still in reporting. The answer is not yep. in, like, louder editorials or even, you know, turning the news pages into sort of, like, editorials in the sense of taking a stance in the news pages. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about more aggressive and sometimes in-your-face reporting than what we're getting now. Yeah, I am. 
challenging reporting. You know, I thought Andrew Ross Sorkin, um, the business columnist for the New York Times, wrote a really good column post the Walmart shooting that contained a number of suggestions for coverage, which really go to my Home Depot example, which is examine Walmart. Put the lens on Walmart the way the, the lens was put on Home Depot. So he his column was actually full of story ideas. So I still believe in the reporting, but I believe that it's it should be like sort of unrelenting and very challenging. It yeah. Be- the problem we have is what you're calling for is coming at the very moment that newsrooms are more resource challenged than ever. So what you're asking you're for, right. what you're asking for, is calling on a journalistic core that, frankly, doesn't really exist in most places. No, you're absolutely right, and I think that's one of the, you know, sort of tragedies of our time, where you know the New York Times is, you know, doing great, and the, uh, the Washington Post, and and they're doing um, really great journalism, but the country is is helped by having strong journalism in all kinds of places. You know, a great example is the Miami Herald and the Jeffrey Epstein story. That wasn't the New York Times that broke that story or the Washington Post. It was courageous reporting by, you know, a very determined reporter in Miami. And we need those kinds of reporters all over the country. That's not what corporate cost cutters who are taking over the newspaper industry are going to want. No. And we've just seen in the last week a huge consolidation in local news. You you end your yeah. you end your piece. You say I can't say anymore that I believe we learn from terrible things. I can say that I've seen the limits of journalism and of hope. You you've gotten you know a, a, I've seen enormous response to this piece. Has the response given you any glimmer of hope that people? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. You know what? And and one person wrote me something that was really helpful, which was saying that, John, you don't know what impact, you know, what changes your reporting wrought, what other cases you may have prevented with the knowledge you brought with your reporting, how things have changed. And that was kind of, it did make me step back because I think I can't stand the enormity of the problem. And I just find it, you know, it's overwhelming to see this happening again and again. And, and the hate that is behind it, it's just it's terrible. Like, I'm determined to keep in, involved in this, but I don't think doing the same thing over and over is enough. And I do think that the news organizations should think about how they could change the way we cover it. So I'd like to see sort of more collaboration, which is a sort of a hallmark of this era in journalism, that allows fewer people to do the same stories over and over and more um, enterprise revealing things that we didn't know uh, previously. Yeah, John, it's been it's been a great conversation. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for asking me to. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, we're talking about such a terrible subject. Yeah. Again, John Temple's piece is called "I've Seen the Limits of Journalism." It's on theatlantic.com. When you get done reading that, go to cgr.org and see what we've got going. Thanks again, and see you next week.